Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we are going to be reading our first and possibly our only male author in this series, John Stuart Mill. His book, The Subjection of Women, written in 1869, is important to me personally because it's the first philosophical critique of patriarchy that I ever read. Um, About six years ago, I was searching for books on the history of patriarchy. I'd never read any. And this book, The Subjection of Women, popped up as a suggestion. And I thought the title looked intriguing. So I bought it and read it. And it is not an exaggeration to say that it was life-changing for me. I saw so many of my own private thoughts and struggles and feelings represented as legitimate cultural and political issues. And I couldn't believe that this analysis had been written a century and a half earlier. I'm really excited to discuss it with my reading partner today, Francis K. Olibes. Hi, Francis K. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here. Before we dive into the book, we also like uh, each time to, for each episode to talk a little bit about the author and what led, uh, in this case, John Stuart Mill to write The Subjection of Women. So, Francis Kay, could you tell us a little bit about John Stuart Mill? Great. Okay. John Stuart Mill, born in 1806 and died in 1873, is known as the most influential English-speaking philosopher of the 19th century. He was fluent in Greek and Latin by the age of 10. By the age of 20, he had extensive knowledge of the arguments of the Greek philosophers and was a gifted practitioner of the art of rhetoric. Mill was a nonconformist. He refused to subscribe to the 39 Articles of Faith of the Church of England and was therefore not eligible to attend Oxford or Cambridge. He attended University College London instead and then went to work with his father for the British East India Company. In 1851, Mill married Harriet Taylor after 21 years of intimate friendship. Brilliant in her own right, Taylor was a significant influence on Mill's work and ideas during both friendship and marriage. His relationship with Taylor reinforced Mill's advocacy of women's rights. He said that in his stand against domestic violence and for the women's rights, he was chiefly an onomoensis, which means writing assistance for scribe, to my wife. He called her mind a perfect instrument and that and said that she was the most eminently qualified of all those known to the author. He cites her influence in his final revision of his famous book on Liberty, which was published shortly after her death. Between the years 1865 and 1868, Mill served as Lord Rector of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. At his inaugural address delivered to the university, he made his now famous but often wrongly attributed remark that bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that that good men should look on and do nothing. He was also a member of Parliament. In 1866, he became the first person in the history of Parliament to call for women to be given the right to vote, vigorously defending this position in subsequent debates. In Introducing Mill, we want to read a passage that he writes in The Subjection of Women, where he writes about the impact of the patriarchal system upon boys and men. Amy, would you mind reading this passage? Yeah, uh, yeah, we we talked about it before and and just thought like, wow, this is an uh, is amazing especially for 1892. So, so progressive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um okay, so I'll just quote Mill for a couple of sentences. He says, quote, "Think what it is to be a boy." 
to grow up to manhood in the belief that without any merit or any exertion of his own, though he may be the most frivolous and empty or the most ignorant and stolid of mankind, by the mere fact of being born a male, he is by right and superior of an entire half of the human race, including probably some who are really superior to himself. If he is a fool, he thinks that, of course, she is not and cannot be equal in ability and judgment to himself. And if he is not a fool, he does worse. He sees that she is superior to him and believes that notwithstanding her superiority, he is entitled to command and that she is bound to obey. Um, he goes on to say, that's the end of his quote, and he goes on to say that um, in childhood, boys don't really pick up on the fact that they are going to eventually like be in charge of women because boys aren't allowed to domineer over their sisters. Um, and they both, both boys and girls have to obey their parents. But Mill says that as boys get a little bit older, they start noticing and figuring out that, oh, actually men are in charge of women in the world. And that, and Mill says that that has a really bad effect on the boy's character. So another quote from him, quote, is it imagined that all this does not pervert the whole manner of existence of the man, both as an individual and as a social being? It is an exact parallel to the feeling of a hereditary king that he is excellent above others by being born a king or a noble by being born a noble. The relation between husband and wife is very like that between lord and vassal, except that the wife is held to more unlimited obedience than the vassal was. However, the vassal's character may have been affected, for better or for worse, by his subordination, who can help seeing that the Lord's was affected greatly for the worse? Whether he was led to believe that his vassals were really superior to himself, or to feel that he was placed in command over people as good as himself, for no merits or labors of his own, but merely for having taken the trouble to be born. End of quote. Wow, Amy. I think this excerpt is so powerful. I do too. It's it's so rare in any time period for people to take the time to examine and challenge systems that benefit them. I mean, this system definitely benefited Mill, but he is questioning it repeatedly with amazing arguments. And I like that he points out that the assumed sense of superiority is corrupting to a boy's character as well. I mean, I have sons. I can see this. So yeah, it takes a lot of courage to admit that. And it really speaks to Mill's character. Well, and probably the influence of his wife. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Such a powerful quote. Um, okay, so should we jump into the book? Um, yeah, I guess that quote was from the book also, but we have kind of outlined um, some main points that we wanted to highlight. So we have five different themes that we felt um, kind of emerged from the text and that we wanted to um, to highlight and bring out. So I'll start with the first one. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So number one, uh, liberty and equality of human beings should be the default. So the quote from Mill is this, the burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, who contend for any restriction or prohibition either any limitation of the general freedom of human action or any disqualification or disparity of privilege affecting one person or kind of person as compared with others. Those who maintain the doctrine that men have a right to command and women are under an obligation to obey or that men are fit for government and women unfit 
they are on the affirmative side of the question and they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertions or to submit to their rejection, uh, end of quote. So here Mill is pointing out that women have always been placed in the position of having to prove that they're worthy of equal rights, right? They're always disadvantaged and having to like clamor and beg and ask for these rights. And he says that that is wrong um, as a philosopher um, and kind of like a professional rhetorician. I mean, he, as, as you talked about in the bio, he, he spoke in parliament. So he's skilled in rhetoric and speech and debate. And he says the default argument should be equal rights. So if someone proposes that a certain group should not have equal rights, then they need to come up with a good reason why not. The burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty. He says they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertion. So that was powerful to me. And I'm going to have that one in my pocket for the next time I have a conversation <laughs> like that. That's perfect. Uh, okay. So I'll take point number two as well. And then um, afterwards, Francis K., you'll have number three. So um, point, point number two is um, that men create laws... And here I have to interject, I would say they can create, men create all kinds of social systems, including um, religions and all kinds of ideologies by observing the world around them and then codifying the systems that they observe. He points out that we often accept things that we are used to um, just as a part of society that we would never introduce into our societies if they didn't already exist, but just because we've already always seen them there, then we're like, oh yeah, that's just the way it is. And then we create laws based on that. Okay. So here's a brief quote from Mill that kind of represents this idea. He says, quote, it arose simply from the fact that from the very earliest twilight of human society, every woman, owing to the value attached to her by men, combined with her inferiority in muscular strength, was found in a state of bondage to some man. So just to reference another author that we've um, featured on the podcast, this is exactly what Gerda Lerner says in The Creation of Patriarchy. She talks about how the agricultural revolution um, changed everything between men and women, and but it, it changed very, very gradually. And so by the time uh, humans started writing down laws like the Code of Hammurabi, they already saw that men basically owned women and traded women. And so by the time they wrote laws, they just took it for granted that that was the way things always had been. I'll just do two um, brief things that kind of fall under this heading of people seeing what's already existent in society and then creating a, a rule around it. So Mill, another quote from him is, he says, it is a political law of nature that those who are under any power of ancient origin never begin by complaining of the power itself, but only of its oppressive exercise. So to me, what if I were to point out um, like a husband who's extremely controlling, let's say, with the finances and makes his wife beg for her an allowance and like buys himself fancy cars, but doesn't let her have grocery money. I know that like any person I know say like, no, of course that's not okay. But, and so Mill is saying like, that's the oppressive exercise of the the dominion. But the thing is that they still, some of these same people who would say, no, of course a husband isn't allowed to do that. They defend the system 
wherein girls are discouraged from having a career. They're encouraged to be financially dependent on their husbands, and they're completely dependent upon him for being nice about sharing his money. So that leads to the husband always having the final say about the finances, and he can make the entire family move to a different place if he decides it's best for his career, even if the wife is like bawling and saying, this isn't best for me. He can say, sorry, like it's my career. So what I wanted to, the reason that that uh, quote jumped out to me of Mill is that he's pointing out is like, sometimes a system is unjust and inequitable, even if the person is being nice about it. So people always question things if the people are being monsters, but sometimes there's an unjust system, even if the person is being nice. Okay, so the last point that I wanted to um, bring out from this section is this quote from Mill. He says, I deny that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes as long as they have only been seen in their present relation to one another. So this is Mill just saying, like, we don't really know because like people talk about like the nature of men, the nature of women. And we think of these things as being biological. And maybe they are. Maybe some of them are. But we actually don't know because the restrictions haven't been lifted. um, And and as they do become more and more lifted, we see things that we thought were women's nature, like easily fainting all the time and needing smelling salts. Well, we don't even think of women being that way anymore. And so um, this this echoes Mary Wollstonecraft, who emphasized the concept that if women were perceived as less intelligent, it was because they were deprived of education. If women were perceived as weak or easily fainting, it was because they were deprived of outdoor exercise. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, and that yeah. that'll that'll come up again and again in other authors. So um, that wraps up my portion. Francis, Kate, did you have anything well, you want to add? Well, I love about what you're saying, deprived of outdoor exercise. So I I really like this next quote he makes about the fitness of women. Quote, women who are in their early, women who in their early years have shared in the healthful physical education and bodily freedom of their brothers and who obtain a sufficiency of pure air and exercise in their life very rarely have any excessive susceptibility of nerves which can disqualify them for active pursuits. Oh, mm-hmm. that that speaks so much to my life because with a brother just one year older, I was outside exploring, running around, getting tough, competing, and just building my confidence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And if you hadn't been allowed to do that, right? I mean, imagine... <sighs> it may have caused like depression, right? Because you weren't allowed to do the things that you wanted to do. And then right, that- and doing things that I wasn't interested in doing, an indoor life that, anyways, I, I didn't have parents like that. But it also, this one makes me so think of Title IX, which you're going to get to at a later time. Yep, yep. Yeah. But with girls in sports, you mean? And yes. Women yeah. in sports, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yep, that's going to come up in a few yeah, episodes. Absolutely. So. Okay, let's shift gears to the next theme, which is, This system, which Mill is talking about, can make every single man a tyrant. And because it takes place in the most intimate relationships, women have to appease their oppressors. So there's a long history of women's oppression, and Mill shares a part of that here in this quote. Originally, women were taken by force or regularly sold by their father to the husband. Until a late period in European history, the father had the power to dispose of the daughter in marriage at his own will and pleasure, 
without any regard to hers. Still happens all over the world. (laughs) The church indeed was so far faithful to a better morality as to require a formal yes from the woman at the marriage ceremony. But there was nothing to show that the consent was other than compulsory, and it was practically impossible for the girl to refuse compliance if the father persevered. After marriage, the man had anciently, but this was anterior to Christianity, the power of life and death over his wife. She could invoke no law against him. He was her sole tribunal and law. For a long time, he could repudiate her, but she had no corresponding power in regard to him, unquote. Wow. Women had to submit to fathers, husbands, and even brothers. This is patriarchy, not just administered on high, but in the household as well. The atrocious inequities of ancient times establish systems of beliefs and behaviors that inform our today. Mill's focus spoke to his current era where women could not own property, be considered the guardian of their own children, or let alone divorce. This tyranny, Mill states, was in women's most intimate relationships and making it so very personal. Okay, to quote Mill again, quote, the wife is the actual bond servant of her husband. She vows a lifelong obedience to him at the altar and is held to it all through her life by law. So Mill's claim that womanhood was a form of slavery seems unnerving and probably was intended to shock to get readers to take gender inequality more seriously. The use of the idea of bondage or slavery of women is important and will be discussed in this and later episodes. But throughout the book, Mill describes women as existing in a state of bondage to men who act as their masters. With so few legal rights that they end up effectively enslaved to their husbands who wield absolute control. This use of these terms, which jolts our our attention, is also where Mill draws on the momentum of the abolitionist movement. So it's important to note the book, The Subjection of Women, was published in 1869, 58 years after slavery was abolished in the British colonies, and four years after it was abolished in the U.S. Wow just four years after slavery was abolished in our country. That is why the comparison is rather poignant. But here, it's very important to note the flaw in Mill's use of the slavery slavery metaphor as it misunderstands the reality of slavery. The oppression of white women is nowhere near the severity of the oppression of the enslaved Black people, let alone Black women as slaves. Yeah, I agree, Frances Kay. I'm glad glad you brought that out, that it's just that reality that the severity is nothing even close, right? A a white woman married in England is not even close to the severity of oppression of of an enslaved person. Right. The lag time from when white women were given the right to to vote and black women were given the right to vote. Right. Yep. That's true. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that out. That's great. Back to Mill. I quote, When we put together these three things, first, the natural attraction between opposite sexes, secondly, the wife's entire dependence on the husband, every privilege or pleasure she has being either his gift or depending entirely on his will, 
And lastly, that the principal object of human pursuit, consideration, and all objects of social ambition can in general be sought or obtained by her only through him. It would be a miracle if the object of being attractive to men had not become the polar star of feminine education and formation of character. And this great means of influence over the minds of women, having been acquired an instinct of selfishness, made men avail themselves of it to the utmost as a means of holding women in subjection. By representing to them meekness, submissiveness, and resignation of all individual will into the hands of a man as an essential part of sexual attractiveness. Oof. Oh my. <sighs> yeah, you hear right? my brain exploding? Totally. Yep. Wow. That is confusing and it feels hard to track. <laughs> That's but... <true. laughs> it is confusing and hard to track. But <sighs> even reading through it like three times, there are so many things that resonate here. Yep. So when I read it for the first time, I had to pause at each one of those aspects Mm -hmm. because it has so much current relevance. So for example, when you think of the beauty industry, how we are just sucked into that, how media, how movies and magazines, well, magazines used to be our messenger of how to be beautiful. Um, That's gone by the wayside, but how all of that has shaped our view of the world and ourselves. We need to be younger, skinnier, more beautiful, all to be sexually attracted to the man. Yep. So we all underwrite this story, both men and women. Yep. His comment, the polar star of feminine education and formation of character is the pursuit of attractiveness. Wow. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. Yep. There's so much to unpack here. We could, you know, like I said, just on that, that quote alone, just- do a whole podcast, but go on, Amy, you're, you're next. Okay. I'll take point number four. Um, so the next theme that we wanted to talk about is the problem with prescribing gender roles. Um, so Mill begins by referencing the class system that has been in place in Europe. And it was just starting to change at the end of the 19th century. And um, Mill says this, quote, Human beings are no longer born to their place in life and chained down by an inexorable bond to the place they are born to, but are free to employ their faculties to achieve the lot which may appear to them more most desirable. Okay, and that's the end of that quote. And so as a society is changing and allowing people to determine their own destiny rather than being locked into the social class in which they were born, um, which was how it had always been prior to that in Europe under the you know serfdom and all of those really stratified, um, really rigid boundaries bet- between the classes, uh, Mill says this, quote, Nobody thinks it necessary to make a law that only a strong armed man shall be a blacksmith. Freedom and competition suffice to make blacksmiths strong-armed men, because the weak-armed can can earn more by engaging in occupations for which they are more fit. End quote. Um, so then he says, after that, he says it's unnecessary to make a rule that certain persons are not fit to do certain things. Quote, even if it be well grounded in a majority of cases, which it is very likely not to be, there will be a minority of exceptional cases in which it does not hold. And in those, it is both an injustice to the individuals 
and a detriment to society to place barriers in the way of their using their faculties for their own benefit and for that of others, end quote. Okay, so I love this argument that if someone wants to be a blacksmith, let him try and be a blacksmith. If he's not good at it, then he won't be successful, right? But like, but what if he is? Why would you make a law that says that somebody like, oh, you're kind of scrawny. I'm going to make a law that says scrawny men can't be blacksmiths, right? He might be the best, the best blacksmith in the world. And conversely, allowing allowing all people to be blacksmiths if they want to doesn't force anybody to be a blacksmith. So that analogy I thought was just really vivid and clear because this argument has been made all throughout history. People, um, when when suffragists were advocating for the right to vote, people would say, oh, you don't want, women don't want the burden of civic engagement. So don't force them to vote. Like that will just stress women out. And so they thought they should make a, a law that women should not be able to vote because some women wouldn't want to, right? Or people saying women don't like to be educated. So don't waste a spot in the university that could have gone to a man. Don't waste that spot on a woman, right? Like, so people have made laws that say that women Women can't even try, right? right. Women don't want to be pilots or Marines or engineers. So men make the rules. Yeah. And some women support them that women can't be or do those things. Right. Exactly. Okay. So that's all I have on point number four. Okay, so the last point is thoughts on marriage. Totally. Okay, so the last point is the um, point number five, or the theme from John Stuart Mill is thoughts on marriage. And this is certainly one of my favorite quotes. And I love ending with this one. Quote, what marriage may be is that best kind of equality similarity of powers and capacities with reciprocal superiority in them so that each can enjoy the luxury of looking up to the other and can have alternately the pleasure of leading and of being led in the path of development. I maintain with the profoundest conviction that this and this only is the ideal of marriage and that all opinions, customs, and institutions which favor any other notion of it, or turn the concepts and aspirations connected with it to any other direction by whatever pretenses that may be colored, are relics of primitive barbarianism. The moral regeneration of mankind will only really commence when the most fundamental of the social relations is placed under the rule of equal justice, and when human beings learn to cultivate their strongest sympathy with an equal in rights and in cultivation. Wow. Wow. That gave me chills to hear you read it out loud. (laughs) Yeah. That, That just really stood out to both of us. Right, Amy? Yeah, it really did. So we talked about it a lot afterwards Mm -hmm. and we think it's important to remember that at the time Mill wrote this in 1892, it was pretty radical to say that women were superior to men in any way, let Mm -hmm. alone that men would look up to the woman in any context. And it was absolutely scandalous to think of a man allowing a woman to be his leader. So Mill is saying something really, really progressive here and almost revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What Mill is advocating for is egalitarianism. He is explicitly rejecting the notion of 
automatic male headship. He says that sometimes the male will be the head and sometimes the female will be the head and that those areas are determined by each partner's strengths and talents and interests, not automatically determined by gender. Mill's insights and clarity on the issues of equality and the ideals of liberty for men and women are so relevant and timely. I'm just so, so happy to have been a part of this podcast and I'm totally excited for the next installment to undiscover, discover, and discard. I mean, break down patriarchy. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is it's just been a joy to talk about these issues with you. And we've been batting our ideas back and forth with email and talking on the phone. And it just, I have been so enriched by diving in. This is not, I I have to, I don't want to discourage any readers uh, or listeners from reading this book because it's so valuable. It's not the easiest book to read though. I mean, it, right. it is, he's a philosopher and the, the language, it does, take some thoughtful reading, but it's not terribly long and it's super valuable. But anyway, this is all to say, thank you for doing this dive with me, Francis K. I learned so much from you. So great for me, really. That's great. Well, I'm honored. Thanks again. I am honored too. 